wasn't sufficiently a social scientist to have turned down the capital awards. I can't have those other guys who had to pay annual awards. You may leave. But I'm an honorary member of the Samuel Langhorne Clement Society of Hannibal, Missouri, Mark Twain, because I am from Missouri, and the man was giving these away to Missourians. Let me reflect a bit and make two related points. The book that I've distributed has a lot of evidence in it from 119 countries, surveys of continental barometers, and the cleaned-up version of the global corruption barometer. So different surveys, Afro, Latino, Euro, EBRD, ask different questions. And you have to ask yourself, what are you looking for? And what's out there? The first point I'd like to make is that I think too many, there's an imbalance in the research, including open data, because it focuses solely on what I call capital-intensive transactions, that is, exchanges between corporations and a limited number of government departments, of which defense infrastructure procurement is a normal thing. It takes capital to build a dam and to supply fighter aircraft. It takes capital in some countries to pay for the contract, the bribes. You can't get a bank loan to fix these things. This is the source of all of these estimates of corruption costs hundreds of billions. Nobody knows, but it's an estimate. I'm interested also in retail corruption, because corruption involves an exchange, and an exchange between an identifiable person and an identifiable public employee in an identifiable context, like checking out at a fast food store, or going to a clinic and seeing a doctor or a nurse. These are face-to-face -face transactions, and bribes get paid there. The survey data indicates it's 1.6 billion people a year, and that's 24% of the world population. My number may be off, but that's because the world population is off by half a billion. <coughs> um, and the interesting thing about retail corruption and ordinary people in normal face-to-face -face transactions is that they're open but not particularly accessible. They're not accessible to Western advisors. They're not accessible to national ministers. And a lot of the anti-corruption literature focuses on national laws in central government and the higher up you go. This makes sense in terms of corruption in party funding, uh, corruption in military equipment or whatever. <coughs> it doesn't make sense when you're getting down to who gets an operation first, who gets the bed when there are three people in one bed. 
And there are a, sm a certain number of things. It's different from the grassroots protest. Not you pick it there. I mean, uh, who is involved for central government, high-level corruption and fighting it? But she wants to motivate people at the grassroots. But she thinks they'll complain about military stuff, but they won't complain about their own stuff. If you can't get them interested in what's going on locally and within their own experience, I think you get a sense of helplessness, and a lot of the survey data shows this. <coughs> so the book sets this out in some detail. The second thing I've noticed from this particular project is that openness can be effective in two ways. Now, I will be the first person today to mention the second way, which was shame. Because when you look at surveys around the world, it's quite surprisingly striking. It's a universal norm. If you ask people, is this bribery, STI does, the answer is yes. You don't tell them, you ask them. And then, is it right or wrong or excusable? The answer is, it's wrong. So, you get into situations where logically, you can have activities that are illegal and shameful, like Financing a lifestyle in Paris of money from the French government, what may be normal, shameful, maybe a crime too. Or it can be ethical and honest, like being paid if you're a member of parliament. You want to get a salary, otherwise only the Duke's younger sons or elder sons could hold the job. <clears throat> so those are the easy ones, illegal and shameful, uh, legal and correct. You then get what I call very small scale, that may be illegal but it's tolerated. How many people, if they got a handwritten bill in an Italian restaurant, would say, I'm going to call the police, you haven't paid back your rental tax. You're an accessory after the fact to a crime. <laughs> It's tolerant. Or you pay some teenager for cutting your grass and you don't ask if he's value-added tax registered. <laughs> okay. Um, you can even get into things that are lesser evil. Like you want a passport to go visit your daughter who's about to have a baby in a foreign country. And it costs you so many rats book next to expedite the issue. It's illegal, but then you get things that are embarrassing or shameful, but legal. Now, Britain is quite ripe in this for two reasons. One of them is that the tendency to be open the aggressiveness of the media, since I was the first person to get a byline in the Times, it used to be our own correspondent. They gave me a byline because I wasn't one of them and they could repudiate me. If they didn't like what I wrote on elections, and they were both investment assistants. 
All of this, the BBC had what was called a sacerdotal approach. You're treating people like Bob Boothby with respect. You can look him up. Um, he, he didn't deal with kids like some of Mr. Parker. Um, but now the post-Watergate and all that, there's a tendency to think that information about anything, if MPs get paid, it's wrong. It used to be in 1960s, they didn't have a salary. You couldn't have working class MPs. It's that simple. But there's lots of information out there. The exposure of members of parliament. Some people were embarrassed, like they'd forgotten to cancel or correct their claim for monthly interest on their second house when the interest rates dropped and they switched providers. Because they didn't think of it. They had, that wasn't their primary activity in moving money about. <coughs> Others were shameful. Should the public really be paying for cleaning somebody's moat? Or for an Oxford to banning a woman's first class PPE degree to be used for getting money to up to her flat and then selling it two years later for an extra fifty thousand pounds. She didn't stand for re-election. So it's a very interesting example of when you reveal things where there is a consensus about shame. People are sanctioned or punished. In the case of a former foreign secretary, A, he couldn't stand for re-election, Malcolm Rifkin, B, he'll never get a seat in the House of Lords, which was his right. He was just been neglected by the Prime Minister, was on the back benches board, everybody else was doing it, and was incautious. <clears throat> but there are real sanctions for being shamed. You can even be falsely shamed, like accusations against celebrities. A lawyer approaches you, said, I hear some terrible stories about what you've done. Then the lawyer gives you an option, pay up, settle out of court, which is also known as extortion. <laughs> I mean, everything has its problem. But the basic thing is where the facts are known. You can shame people. And it's coming up in the kind of um, large corporations, some of them, are beginning uh, McDonald's is getting toward organic food. It used to be for, I think, family reasons. They supported crippled children. It was a Ronald McDonald fund because somebody in the family had a dreadful problem. Others do hospices for cancer. I mean, okay, but this is totally dissociated from how you grow your pork, how you catch fish. <clears throat> and the corporations are interested in the reputation. It's a commercial asset. It affects their share prices sometimes. And some investors might not have. For example, things she won't invest in. I wouldn't put money in a tobacco on principle.
Also, it's risky if the law center can't show up. It's really just, thank you, no. Um, so, <clears throat> I think there's more to be said for shame. It does require, first of all, that there's a consensus. So, you then have, is this shameful? Now, there are competing criteria to judge people's behavior. Tony Blair is quite interesting because all the allegations about Lord Levy, who'd made tens of million honestly, involved selling peerages. Now, Levy was personally made tons in the rock music business, but, and played tennis with Tony Blair, but they, instead of being supported by the trade unions, you've got a million here, a million there, and some of these people ended up, and the middle looks like K question mark and some, a number and some zeros. I would believe there was nothing corrupt if he was cleared in the court of law. Preferably English, because you could get not proven in Scotland. <laughs> the instructions to the prosecutor. But if you listen to these sorts of disclosures, one thing would be, well, it's excusable or the other side did it. And in Austria, it's built into the system. We're all doing it. Quite interestingly, the Austrian case. If we're all doing it, there's nothing wrong. In other cases, it's my side. Bill Clinton was disbarred in Arkansas. <laughs> he couldn't be a university president. But he was a Democrat. And the same excuses that Pat McGovern used for Watergate. Nixon was elected, were used by Yale and Harvard law professors. That's partisanship competes. In the case of Blair, does one better because his dealings with money and opaque companies would put Gaddafi's side of the LSC to shame for fancy. They're playing Penny Anthony. But Blair sees nothing wrong with it. Now, when people are shameless, you know, that's politics. Because there's a tendency in these prescriptions and the assumptions of all the papers and all the literature that there's a consensus of values and no conflict. There are obstacles, but what we're doing is the right thing. When you get into privacy, people begin to see that there are competing values, there are trade-offs. For example, if the Swedes want to publish every income tax, okay. But I myself would say, well, people who hold public elective office ought to publish their income tax and assets in Russia, you get into relatives too. You know, in other words, you don't have to stand for parliament, you don't have to take an office of profit, but you have privileges and obligations. The Freedom of Information Act talks about your privileges to protect yourself on security. <clears throat> it's a good example 
of what I'm calling attention to is not one size fits all. Now, open data can help in some ways, but I think the one key point is it's all connected with digitization, computerization. And the key thing about computers is they are not people. And bribery is an exchange between individuals, including the man, the bag man, the Watergate money, and whoever arranges things in African, African country. You don't, if you do it through bank things, there's still people before it. And computerization gets rid of people. It forces you to be transparent, open about your criteria, to figure out what your pension rights are, if this and that. In a funny way, it can empower people by giving them a birth certificate, <laughs> and by giving them a death certificate if they want to open up a dead relative's bank account, rather than let the bank take 18 months. <coughs> And particularly in the European case, it's interesting because when you look around Europe, those exemplars, whatever your exemplar country may be, Sweden is the usual one, and Denmark, and then there's Bulgaria, Romania, <laughs> Lithuania, but there's an awful sort of little Europe is somewhere in between Mediterranean and Sagoma stretch from Cyprus to Sudan. So I think if we talked about policies, and I'll put this out as my recommendation, that are good in themselves because they make public public information and public activities. They're available to bureaucrats. Why not make them available to citizens? who are caught up in them. Estonia is the paradigm case. I've talked to people over the desk. It's not bullshit about electronic opening up of government files with your, the same card you use to pay for buses. Openness is good in itself. It's more efficient. A 24-7 way to get a license your car is both cheaper. <laughs> no, electronically than having to go queue. And as sure as God made Mo Ibrahim, don't patronize Africans by saying they can't use electronic equipment. So I think that the, what I'm really arguing for is extending what we're doing rather than contradicting. Thanks, Richard. <clears throat>